from AOPA and the Air Safety Institute. This is There I Was, a podcast where we put you in the cockpit of pilots in demanding situations and we learn how they flew out of them. Today's episode is part two of a special series on backcountry flying, a particular passion of our host, the late Richard McSpadden. Our guest is a retired Air Force pilot, CFI, CFII, MEI, and seaplane rated. He's currently an airline pilot with a major airline and a lifelong backcountry pilot. He chooses to remain anonymous for this candid discussion. If you haven't yet heard part one, our last episode, we highly recommend you do so. Meantime, enjoy today's episode, part two. So let's go back and talk about what happens from a legal standpoint. Did you contact the FAA, the NTSB? Walk us through that. You know, is this an accident or not? Does it qualify? How'd you handle all that? Well, I, I'll be perfectly honest with you. <laughs> this next piece with all that was probably just one or two levels scarier than the incident itself. So the Frank Church, it's run by the uh, the Forest Service. And it's considered a, a national park. And so a lot of people get involved when something happens back there. And when you hit that SOS button, you're going to get a helicopter there soon. But every agency on the planet is now aware of what just took place, for better or worse. Mm -hmm. So I got a message from Tim Steffen. He's uh, with the Idaho Department of Aeronautics. Fantastic guy. We had a real good conversation. I was, <laughs> I was, I was so apologetic. I said, listen, Tim, I'm, I'm from here. I know how hard we fight to maintain these backcountry strips and maintain our use of this. I go, I promise you, I'm not some Yahoo out here that wasn't ready for it. And I apologize for any, any trouble that this brings us. And so he was, you know, like always oh, glad I was okay. And he was appreciative that I understand the peculiarities of, of our flying and trying to keep access to it. Yeah, I want to pause and talk about that for a second because it is an element right there is that it takes a lot of work to keep these strips open and maintain access to them. And that's why we put together this, this coalition called the Backcountry Safety Coalition mm -hmm. and its members throughout its state agencies, its associations. And Tim Steffen is a really big and important piece of that backcountry safety coalition where we're trying not just to help people fly safer in the backcountry, but also it's the etiquette piece and to just help people understand how much work goes into keeping access to these strips. Yes. And so learning little things that, you know, not to buzz people on the river. They don't think it's near as cool as you do. Okay. They, they've been <laughs> yes. waiting maybe four years to get their permit to float the river, right? So just right. little things that just show etiquette and, and, you know, appreciation for other people back there. So, right. yeah, an important piece of it. And so you're talking to Tim Stefan and you tie off with him and then where'd it go legally from there? Um, well, I asked him for help with the Forest Service, just, you know, a number to get a hold of so I can let him know where the airplane is, what happened, give him an idea of just reassure them that I have not ruined the forest and to give them a time frame that it's going to be out. Right. Because they just one, they want to know what happened Two, they just want to know when the obstacle is going to be removed. Mm -hmm. So they were easy to deal with. They understood. And I kind of laughed. I said, well, I'm not really an obstacle because if anybody ends up where my airplane is, like they're in the same boat I'm at. So I'm not in anybody's, anybody's way, but they were real easy to deal with. But I caught a call 
it was it was the next afternoon. The first agency to call me was the NTSB. A very matter of fact, short phone call. <laughs> hmm. More matter of fact than you would you know you would appreciate on the side of you know what's going to happen to me kind of deal. They asked if I had pictures. Of course, you know I did. I took pictures of everything because I I've, I've seen this play out a hundred times with friends and family and. I was eager to share them with them. And unfortunately for me, this particular person took a very, I can't fault them because, you know, black and white, it is black and white. That's what's written. But the line between accident and incident is, you know, it's very clear, but there's some times where some people have a little latitude to say, okay, well, given the, the nature and the gauge of it, not necessarily as you know nefarious as an accident, but one look at that aileron, three inches or not, and he was like, accident, click. Yeah, so there's some criteria the NTSB uses to declare it an accident, right? And it's yes. serious death or injury, of course. But then there's the gray area, the substantial damage area, right? That's, that's where the gray area is. Right, and so many people have the impression, and I don't know where they get it, but they have the impression that because the difference between incident and accident is what they call substantial damage. And people have the, the false impression that substantial damage is tied to the value of what was broken. And it has nothing to do with the value. Now, generally, the things that they consider, you know, carry a lot of value, but they're not, they're not tied to that. Where I got roped into it is, and I'm, I'm not quoting it verbatim, but essentially if, if there's any damage to a flight control that ultimately changes the flight characteristics of the aircraft, that's considered substantial damage. So because my aileron was bent, you know, that's a flight control. And so I guess my reasoning behind it, faulty or no, I don't know, is, and we had a very short conversation about it, is I go, that's three inches of what's probably 120 inches worth of aileron on a gigantic, whatever it is, US 32B cub wing. It's a barn door and I've bent three inches on it. My point to him was like, if you closed your eyes and flew the airplane, you probably wouldn't even know or feel that difference. But I go, I agree with you in the fact that mathematically, aerodynamically, it's been altered. But is there, and he's like, nope, substantial damage, accident, click. So that was that, you know, you can't poo-poo about it if it just is what it is. And that was the line he decided to take, which unfortunately sends you down a very distinct path. And so, it was about a week later, I got a call from the FISDO. And the conversation with them was dramatically different than the conversation with the NTSB. And I know everyone has strong feelings about FISDOs and inspectors and stuff like that. But I'll tell you what, I, uh, I hit the gold mine, I feel, with mine because this, this particular inspector was one that has and had a significant amount of flying experience in the types of airplanes we fly and at the types of places we fly. He was, he was intimately familiar with mile high. And so while they're not going to cut you any slack, you know, nor should they based on if you break a rule, but what it does is it gives them a better understanding of maybe your approach to things. I, I think it helps them do their job in a way that others who don't know those circumstances could maybe do the same job. Mm-hmm. And so he called and he's a very, very nice gentleman and said that he had read the narrative I wrote. 
because you have to fill out this big long form for the NTSB. He had read that and he's like, just, just tell me the story. And so spent about an hour and I, I laid it all out, you know, my background, the aircraft, all the things I do to stay proficient, all the planning I do, all the safety measures I put in place to make sure what I was doing was as safe as anybody could possibly make it. And so in the end, he was also very frank. And he said, in these reports that we fill out after something like this, the FAA has nine responsibilities. And he started going through them. And he got through the first eight and he said, would you agree that this situation doesn't even remotely squeeze into any of those first eight? Okay, I got him here. Do you? Okay. I'm going to read them out. So it's the nine responsibilities that they, that they look at. Performance of FAA facility or function. Obviously not relevant. Performance of a non-FAA-owned air traffic control facility. Nope. Airworthiness of the aircraft. They could probably determine that very quickly. Obviously not an issue with your mm-hmm. carbon cub. Adequacy of the FARs, not an issue. Airport certification standards, not an issue. Security standards, not an issue. Medical qualifications, not an issue. So that takes us to competency of FAA certified airmen. Yep. Is that where they landed? That was where he left it. He goes, would you agree that the first eight? Yeah have nothing to do. And I said, yes, sir. He's like, can you guess what number nine is? And I go, my guess is pilot error. And he goes, unfortunately, yes. Yeah. He goes, it's the only one that even remotely, we could even remotely touch on. And he goes, if that's the avenue, well, then that ends up in either enforcement or recertification. Or hopefully compliance. You know, the FAA has this compliance philosophy, right, which is a little different. Right. And so my heart sank, you know, given what I do for a living and, and some things I had going on at the time. And yeah, I told him, I even made the comment, I go, you know, I, I tipped my cub over in the Idaho backcountry, And right now I go, I feel like I've, you know, run a 747 off the end of a runway. And he goes, yeah, he goes, I can appreciate that. Sometimes these lanes are rather rigid. He goes, let me, let me work on this. Let me bring some other people, get some other people involved and, and let me work on this because it, it just wasn't sitting. And I think that's where, I don't know, maybe the being the pilot piece comes into play. But he goes, let me work on this. <laughs> and, and he did. He went and worked on it. So for three days, I had kind of my heart in my throat. And uh, he called me back. And to give you the kind of idea of the kind of human he was, the first thing he said to me when he called me was, I apologize for it taking three days. And I hope, you know, it didn't cause a ton of anxiety over this weight, you know. Man, this is the kind of person we hope for in the <laughs> FA, right? He totally understands yes. the magnitude of what's at stake here for you emotionally, for you in your, in your business life. Yes. And so he's taking his job very seriously, which he's got to do. And we're thankful that he does that. He also, he's also recognizing the human element of this. So... I'm I'm anxious to hear the outcome, but I'm also happy to hear that you got somebody in there with a, a picture that understands, you, you know, what's at stake here. Yes. And so what he um, what he described to me was he because ultimately the, the manager of the FISDO is who has to approve the report. Mm-hmm. Right. All he can do is write it. If the manager doesn't approve it, then it doesn't matter. So from what he described to me is he had the manager and several inspectors sit at a table with him. 
I guess he just posed the question to them. He, he told them the whole story and everything. He posed a question to him, you know, what else would you have done? And, you know, looking at everything, uh, a, a side note to this, if anybody's ever wondered if any of that fast team stuff or our AOPA wings program stuff is worth anything, I'm telling you right now, it is. Because when you get this FAA form, it asks you on the bottom, what kind of courses have you taken? What kind of recurrent stuff have you taken? It asks you everything you do to stay a proficient pilot other than, well, I take my biannual with a buddy of mine and he signs me off and I do, you know, I fly yeah. once every three months. That's interesting. It's giving you a chance to advocate for yourself, isn't it? To show the FAA and others, yes. hey, I, I go out of my way. I attempt to be a good, safe pilot abiding by the regulations. It's an opportunity to kind of sell yourself there. It is. It shows them that you are, you take it seriously. And so I was able to put down there all my FERC training that I've done with the AOPA on the, on the, you know, for the wings credit yeah. and all those little wings credit type uh, CBTs you can take. And some of the other um, courses that I volunteered for with uh, where I work mm-hmm. and I put all that in there. Yeah. And almost all put a little plug in here, almost all AOPA material, yeah. the air safety Institute at AOPA, almost all of our stuff qualifies for that wings credit and that kind of credit. It's very well yes. respected by yes. the FAA. So good, good stuff. It's easy. Do it. God forbid you're ever in this situation, but if you are, it absolutely counts because it paints a picture that you're more than just a part-timer that doesn't take it serious. And so I honestly, in my heart, believe that all those things I was able to list down there, what I did to keep myself current and proficient and make myself better, truly, I believe, weighed into the decision they finally made. And so what ended up happening is, I guess, ultimately, from what he says, that they they just couldn't come up with anything else they would have done. And so with that, the manager and then decided that for the first time in his 30-something year career, okay, it, was, it was a long number, they decided to submit a report and not select any of the nine categories. Mm. Mm. He said that he had personally never seen that done, but he also hadn't really run into a scenario where they couldn't maybe find something. And so the outcome became, because they didn't mark anything, they just labeled it as counseling, And he said, the counseling was just you telling me your story. So he's like, that's already done. You've already told me the story. Because you'd had extensive discussions with him on everything you did and preparation and all that, right? So he had a really good feel for the kind of pilot he was dealing with and the situation. Right. And so he considered that the counseling. And then he just wrote up a very, they have to write up a narrative. And basically he just extensively described mile high itself in the conditions, something to the effect that upon landing, uh, unforeseen hazard something, the pilot elected to ground loop the airplane to stop for cata- you know, catastrophic something. That, I'm paraphrasing, something that but effect, yeah. he made it a yeah. point to capture the fact that I had ground looped on purpose and not because I had mismanaged something. Yeah, yeah. And that was it. That was the end of the FAA chapter wow. of the whole thing. Yeah. And I was just, I was so taken aback by the effort that 
he put into it that, you know, any given day, any, all of us at some point are just overloaded and tired, especially in that agency with everything that has to come across their desk. That was like, okay, my guy crashes Cabo mile high, check pilot error next, you know, it could have been, and right. It could have been, it could have been, and they didn't. And so I'll forever be in their debt for that. Yeah. And you know, they're, they're a huge agency and we do a lot of work with them. I have enormous respect for the FAA Yes, and we're, yes. we're safer. No question. We're safer because of the FAA. And I'm thankful for that. It's a big organization though. And sometimes you can deal with pockets that just feel like they need a little more understanding, you know, the human touch and what they're actually doing and the decisions they're making. Every now and then you'll, you'll hit a pocket like that. Yes. I'm thankful that what helped here was they had somebody in that Idaho FISDO who actually knew and understood the backcountry. So that, that's not only helpful to you, it's helpful to the FAA for how they're dealing with the entire environment out there. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's invaluable. And it's, I don't know, I guess it's, there's so much flying out there, but even my insurance agent, he goes, oh, yeah, I go back there all the time. I know exactly where that is. So I just I completely lucked out in that everybody I've dealt with is super familiar with what I was doing and where I was at. So talk to us about that piece. Now you got to make the call to the insurance company. Right. Now they know that they're insuring a carbon cub and they know what those things are built for and why people like yep. you buy them, right? No, everybody's fully transparent here. Yep. How has the reaction been from the insurance company and your coverage? And talk to us about that piece. Yeah, it has been no questions asked. To be honest, they, they asked for the normal stuff. You know, they have to establish coverage. So they just ask for uh, certain pages of the logbook for the airplane, certain pages of your logbook, your medical, just those things to make sure that the airplane was airworthy and that you were qualified to fly it. Yeah. And once that was established, that all that was copacetic, it was just send me every receipt you get. And within seven days I've been getting a check. I was kind of, was kind of nervous about, you know, getting the airplane back down to an airport mm -hmm. and what that, what that would run. Cause you see your airplane under a helicopter and you can just imagine the value of this, right. Of yeah. What that's going to cost. And, uh, I called a, a very dear friend of mine who's been in the business a very long time. And he goes, Oh no, you're, you're fine. He goes, if you read, the back part of your policy somewhere and you look he's like there will be a section in there that says it is your responsibility to secure the aircraft from further damage and that all expenses associated with that are covered hmm. and he goes by getting that airplane off the mountain and getting it in a hangar you've done exactly that and yeah i was lucky because you know mccall's not far from mile high and they didn't have to do any work on the ground. They just had to pick the airplane up. But uh, my airlift bill for the airplane was uh, $6,900. And uh, McCall, those guys, Jake and those guys, just phenomenal. They put me in their big hangar there at seven fifty a month. They gave me the, you know, <laughs> the family discount, I guess. I don't know. But I, I submitted those receipts, and they, they never, never questioned it, never batted an eye. You know, ever since ADSB Weather launched, pilots have been questioning why they should try SiriusXM Aviation Weather. There's lots of reasons why pilots should try SiriusXM. First, a good pilot is always using redundancy, and having a second weather source is always a good idea. SiriusXM is satellite-delivered weather 
so you can check your weather at the run-up or at 500 feet or at your destination 500 miles ahead. Plus, there's no line of sight restrictions to worry about if you're flying in the mountains or the backcountry. It has some really cool features that ADSB doesn't have, like storm cell attributes. They can tell you the tops, speed, and direction of a storm. But the biggest reason why a pilot should try Sirius XM Aviation right now is that you can get three months for free. That's right, Sirius XM is giving pilots three months of aviation weather and entertainment so they can try all that Sirius XM Aviation has to offer. And then they can answer for themselves whether Sirius XM Aviation is right for them. To learn more about this special trial offer exclusively for AOPA members, visit aopa.org slash Sirius XM. Well, do you know yet, like, okay, how about your policy for next year? Any ideas on? <laughs> I called. Yeah. <laughs> I called and I said, listen, I, uh, I just want to know that I'm going to be okay, that I can even fly the airplane. You know, I go been accident-free my entire career and I have one. And I told her, I said, listen, I go, I'll, I would rather pay for this whole thing out of pocket than you guys like cancel my insurance and I not be able to fly the plane. And she was, she was wonderful. She goes, well, if you're found at fault, then that complicates things a little bit because that kind of speaks to your judgment. But if it was just an accident, and this, these are exactly her words. She's like, if it's just an accident, she's like, that's what's insurance. That's what insurance is for. Mm -hmm. She goes, now the policy is going to go up just because you've had a claim, but we're not going to cancel you because you had an accident. That's literally why we're here. Yeah. And so, um, you know, what it goes up, I don't know. Um, at this point, I'm just kind of numb to the whole thing. Yeah. But the, the cost of parts, I, I, <laughs> I, can, I can now see why insurance rates just keep going up because it has been jaw-dropping what these insurance companies are being charged for. Had a close buddy ding an airplane in northern Colorado, had his wing worked on in Idaho, and to get the wing, just one wing, not the, not the whole thing, just you know the, the, the right wing, to haul that from Idaho to Colorado, which we done in a day, they charged him $7,000. You know, you, uh, make a, <laughs> you make a good point. It, you know, the, the underwriters, we've all been dealing with that for a couple of years now, and the premium increases. And there's a lot of dynamics to that, but certainly one of them is the cost of goods and the cost of repair these days as opposed to what it used to be say you know even seven or eight years ago and it's escalated and the underwriters are having to deal with that so that is an element of why we're we're paying the premiums we're paying it is so let's look at what now as you look back on it what are the lessons learned there well i it was funny because at the end of the conversation with my faa inspector i said well i've i've managed to do something you guys couldn't and he laughed. I said, I've, I thought of something that I could have done. And he's like, really? He's like, I'm, I'm all ears. And I said, well, I, go, I could have gone second. <laughs> Had I not gone first, I could have gone second. And he, and he laughed about that. Um, you know, it's one of those tough things because you, you want to walk away from every circumstance, good or bad, feeling like you've learned something. You've added to your bag of tricks, right? Mm -hmm. But this is one of those where it's interesting because I don't feel like I added to my bag of tricks. But what's great is 
I now know firmly that my bag of tricks works. Mm. I have confidence in the fact that the things I've reasoned through in my brain and briefed myself and talked myself through as my contingencies, when push comes to shove, they're not theory, like it worked. And so I have so much more confidence in the preparation that I, that I do already and that uh, it does work. You know, it's the first time I used that satellite communicator. Every time I go back there, I carry food and water and a gun and a shovel and all these things to be comfortable for two or three days, right? Because it can be that long. Mm -hmm. And it's the first time I'd had to break them out and make sure that. Uh, so when I pulled that kit apart, I just had a sigh of relief. And I'm like, I'm so glad <laughs> that I didn't skimp and I brought this with me. And that the satellite thing does work when you hit the button. And that, you know, those old, old guys telling me to just tip it over if things get bad, no kidding, work. So my lesson learned is that my preparation is not wasted. And the confidence in it is more now than it's ever been, is what I've definitely taken away from it. I wish I knew, you know, how to attack mile high. Better. Yeah, that, you know, that's <laughs> you know? what I'm thinking. Like, it seems like the the underlying cause was, and you shared a picture with me where there's some grass and it looks green and, you know, normal. And, and you peel that grass back and you see there's stand, almost standing water, not quite, but pretty close to it, shim, really shimmer, right. right? And so I'm looking and I'm thinking of doing, you know, you're doing your low approaches back there. You're looking for that. How, how now are you going to have confidence that that's not the case going into either mile high or some other. I mean, it was a particularly wet summer or spring, right? Right. So maybe it had accumulated, obviously it had accumulated more groundwater than it normally does. But I don't, you know, any thoughts on that? Well, there was a, a gentleman in McCall when, when the airplane was getting airlifted in, we're all standing there watching it get set down and, uh, Oh, a well-seasoned individual, that's what I'll call just a, a wonderful, wonderful older man, spent his whole life up there, because he saw an airplane that was dinged, and he heard that it was at mile high, and you could tell immediately he just chalked it up, to, well, yep, mile high, I'll do that. And I'm like, well, this wasn't just kind of the normal mile high, I landed hot, hit the brakes, and I'm on my back at the top. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I explained to him, and I even showed him that picture I shared with you, and uh he was kind of taken aback by it and scratched his head a little bit. And he shared an idea. He, as a kid, said that he had remembered there being a talk of like a spring back there somewhere. And that he, he didn't halfway wonder if that the fact that Idaho is, you know, all the reservoirs and rivers are completely full for the first time in as long as I can remember, that that spring maybe wasn't running again mm. he, he mentioned that in passing yeah i i can't put anything to that i've never experienced anything like that you know i i just i don't know and i know the i know the week prior they had had a, a good amount of rain in that big creek area but i mean golly it was it was days between when i was there and when that happened and so i guess the only thing i could possibly think of is just, I don't know, putting a wider margin than I ever thought existed between rainfall and, and mile high or, yeah. or, you know, like I said, jokingly, but only half hour, like 
just don't go in there first. (laughs) (laughs) Just see if there's another airplane there. Not that I'd ever sacrifice any of my friends, but just maybe if you see an airplane on the ground, you're like, oh, and it's on its wheels. You're like, oh, okay. You know, maybe we'll give it a shot. But I, I don't know. I haven't, I haven't come to grips with that yet. Yeah. I just don't know. And before the whole NTSB and FAA thing, I'd have been like, well, I'll just try it again. I know what to do now. Right. Cause I've gone through this a million times. And it's like, there's, there's a real part of me that wishes I had a do over on the landing itself, because I feel like the second I touched down, if I, if I already knew what the outcome would be, had I been able to like do my ground loop early I don't know that I couldn't have got that thing all the way around and stopped on just thrust. Hmm. It's just one of those things like you wish it was a video game and you could try it over and over again. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But, you know, you, you play with those things in your mind. But after everything I went through regulatorily, you got to have that, well, you know, maybe my mile high days are behind me, not because I don't think I can do it, but because God forbid anything happened. Just the questions that are raised, you yeah. know, it's terrifying. And then just how hard it is to assess the conditions right. and the surface conditions in the backcountry because that's, you know, one of the unique challenges of the backcountry is you don't have any of the infrastructure that you have outside of it, right? Whether right. it's weather reporting or anything like that. So it's up to you to try to figure that out. And it can be difficult as your situation demonstrated. So it's, it's kind of a lesson in just how difficult it is to assess those conditions and all the factors that, that may go into it, you know, some of which you may be blind to. Yeah, and places, you know, like Cabin Creek and the Loons and Weatherby and places like that, they're legitimate strips. So you're going to see generally like water pooling or there's going to be signs. But mile high, there was just, you know, given the steepness and the grass, the way there was just no... And I, you know, I know even not to go in there like early in the morning, right? Because that grass, when it's covered in dew, is super slick. So you even wait. This is this happened about one in the afternoon, full sun. So the risk of dew was gone. So everything, nothing lined up at all to tell me that it was going to be anything other than another routine. Yeah. Not that ever going into mile highs routine, but just another mile high experience. So again, I, I, I got to chew on that more. I don't quite know how I've tackled that one yet. But <laughs> Well, thanks for sharing your story with us. I'm grateful that you had all that time with your granddad who put that tool in That's your toolkit right. <laughs> that you really probably never thought you'd have to use. You probably thought about it. I don't know. You're probably like me. You know, I fly and I have these situations. And I think about like, what would I do if it ever got like, really, I'm completely out of ideas. Yeah. So I'm, I'm sure you had thought about it and that preparation saved you from toppling over the side and being, you know, much worse than it was. Well, I'll tell you what I do. And I'll tell you what I would recommend anybody if they're going to start thinking about adding this is anytime I'm coming into an airfield where I feel like, you know, landing distance is critical, just like every pilot does, you plan, okay, if, if I get to this point and I'm not stable, I'm going to go around. I'll look at the airfield and say, okay, if I get down and things don't work out, do I want to ground loop to the left or the right? Because you got a field to the left, you got tree line to the right. So I will kind of pregame in my brain, if it came down to that, which way I'm going to ground loop before I'm on final, the same way we do day in and day out in all the other airplanes when we talk about go-arounds. So it's on my mind. Every time I'm on final, I'll sort that out. 
Because if you think about it once and go, yeah, that's a great idea, and you don't bring it into your active airfield assessment and those things that you start kind of scanning through your brain on final while you're making sure everything is sorted out and proper, you won't think of it. And so that's how I do it. Everyone's different, but I'm thankful for it. <laughs> the old man taught me some, <laughs> some hard lessons, but as you get older, you get thankful for every one of them. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for sharing your story with us, and I hope to run into you out in the backcountry sometime. I look forward to it. It would be an honor. Thanks for giving me the time. Well, we're thankful he shared his story with us, an experienced backcountry pilot that had been in some of the most demanding strips for years. And on this particular day, the conditions were such that he got caught on a wet strip that caused him some problems, a wet strip that he really couldn't see in the passes that he made. So it reinforces how difficult it is to assess the conditions in the backcountry and how much effort we have to put into assessing those in every way possible before we go in. We're thankful for all the things that worked for him and that his airplane will be back flying soon. Thanks for joining us on this edition of There I Was. Alongside our producer, David O'Leary, I'm your host, Richard McSpadden. Until next time, fly safe. There I Was is produced by the AOPA Air Safety Institute. If you'd like to hear other episodes, submit comments, or submit your own story to potentially be featured on the show, please visit airsafetyinstitute.org slash there I was. Thanks for listening.